Hi, welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Barber, and today we're speaking with Dan Castro, a leading authority in securities, investments, credit ratings, and finance. Dan joins us in this episode to discuss best practices for expert witness engagements on high stakes litigation, career pathways in STEM fields like finance, and emerging trends and risks for litigators and in-house counsel to monitor. Daniel I. Castro Jr. is an IMS thought leader and founder of a consulting company focusing on structured finance markets, including ABS, RMBS, CMBS, CDOs, asset-backed commercial paper, structured investment vehicles, and other structured finance securities. He's been involved in the fixed income and structured finance markets for over 30 years and has worked on both the sell side and the buy side of the market, buying and selling billions of dollars of ABS, RMBS, CMBS, and CDOs. Dan has a particularly deep and broad perspective on the market and has worked in a range of roles, including strategist, quantitative analyst, banker, rating agency analyst, research analyst, collateral manager, fund manager, chief investment officer, chief credit officer, chief risk officer, and investor for companies ranging from Moody's, Merrill Lynch, and other FINRA-registered broker-dealers and investment houses. He served on the board of directors for the American Securitization Forum, providing expert advice to congressional committees, the Federal Reserve, and the Department of Treasury. Dan has written and contributed to several published works on topics spanning fixed income and structured finance markets, is frequently invited to speak at industry conferences and forums, and has delivered insight and analysis on major network news shows. Dan, can you tell us tell us a little bit about your background? How did you first get engaged specifically as an expert witness? Yeah, well, first just background. I've been doing, you know, what I'll call structured finance for over 30 years. I was actually involved when the market uh, started at its inception. I worked on one of the very first deals. I'm going to date myself here back in the mid 80s. And since then, I've been in, in mortgage origination, underwriting, servicing, mortgage banking, I ran research group at Merrill for 12, 13 years. I've also been a banker, rating agency analyst, and I've been on the investment side as a collateral manager, hedge fund manager, and fund manager. So it's so a lot of background there. So back in, I think it was 2008, when I was working on the buy side, I got a call from a guy at a hedge fund up in Connecticut, and he said they needed help because they had some litigation on a CDO that they'd done. He's like, well, you're one of the biggest CDO managers out there, so we think you can help us. I go, well, sure. What do you need? Some data? You need? And they said, no, we need an expert witness. And I'm like, what's that? Didn't know what that was at the time. He explained what they wanted. He said, well, talk to our lawyers. They'll give you more details. And then he said, and they'll pay you pretty well. So like, okay. So I talked to him. I said, oh, I can do this. So I started working on my first case and turned out pretty well. I did really well, and they did did well on the case. And I started doing that sort of on the side. And I did that for three or four years. And I think it was 2011 when I had my last Wall Street job where I was actually an employee. And then I had my contract ended and I wanted to move on. I didn't know what I was going to do next. So I thought, well, I was working on a case like I'll do this and until the next thing comes along. And then after the financial crisis, and that was right about the time that the litigation just exploded. And all of a sudden, I'm getting inundated with requests. I got one of the major banks called me and they had like 17 cases. They had inherited another bank during the financial crisis and the consolidation. 
and they had literally had 17 cases for me to work on. And it just went from there. And then I had things on the auto side, on the credit card side. Ultimately, probably the biggest one I ever worked on was the Lehman bankruptcy. And they interviewed a lot of people for that. And I thought, well, why not? I'll talk to them. And then they chose me to do it. And that was huge. I mean, the mortgage exposure to Lehman Brothers on that was around $220 billion. So <laughs> biggest thing ever done. And there's still stuff from the financial crisis still out there a little bit. Trickling as we look at the next peak. Yeah. So clearly you enjoy working as an expert witness and then working with attorneys on litigation. Can you tell me, talk to us about what you do enjoy about working as an expert witness? Actually, I like the whole process, but it's going to sound funny because the thing I enjoy the best is trials and depositions. And most experts think that's the worst part. <laughs> I'm just the opposite. I think that's the best part. And the reason I say that is, well, one, I have to know every detail about the litigation, the case, the material, all of it. And I've got people on the other side that are going to attack everything I've said. And not just in that case, they will look at everything I've done in my career. They'll bring up research I wrote 10, 15 years ago, interviews. And I've done lots of print interviews, that have been, but I've also got like a dozen TV interviews I've done on the major networks, on Bloomberg, on all those CNBC, all those people. And they'll pull out something I said in like 2006 or 2008 and say, well, this is what you said before the financial crisis. And, and I'll say, well, at the time that was true and things changed. So clearly some of that stuff changed over time. But when I said it, it was spot on. So they'll bring up stuff like that. But I actually like that. And the people on the other side are generally very bright, very smart, and they know their material. And that forces me, you know, I like just the competition. Okay, throw your best at me and let's see how I do, you know, and it's been fine. So I really do enjoy that part of it. I mean, I like all the rest of it, but that's my favorite part because then then I get to find out like, okay, how well did I do my work here? That's where you get tested. It's great. For someone who's new, right? Because you can be a very established professional or executive in your industry or space. Working as an expert is a little bit different. For someone who's new to this space and has just been engaged as an expert witness, what advice would you have for that person? I think the first thing is make sure you understand what your role is, because on a lot of these cases, if it's a smaller case, you might be the only expert. But on most of the cases I've worked on, they're pretty big matters. They might be three or four or even five other experts just on your side of the case and an equal amount on the other side. So if they pick like, let's say, five people to work on it, well, that means that they gave me one thing to do and they've got other people doing other things. You want to make sure that you don't step on somebody else's toes and you don't go beyond the parameters. So you have to have a clear understanding with the law firm, like what are the parameters? And then you have to make sure that you're aware of, and it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, of everything you've ever said or written that might be used against you because they will throw everything at you that they can, even if it was, and they'll take it out of context and you need to put it back into context when that comes up to it. And the other thing is don't say or write anything unless you're absolutely confident you can support it. If you can't support it, don't go there. That's the big thing. But I think that the top thing is just to understand your role and make sure that you and the law firm understand what they want you to do. Because like in my case, I've done so many things. I could talk about the entire case usually, but they don't often want me to. Sometimes they have other people that they want to have that other person focus on it. So I have to make sure that I stay away from that. That's usually the hardest part for me. I mean, now it's easy because I've done it for so long. But when I first started, it was very difficult because I didn't 
fully grasp what was going on. That makes sense. What about for a litigator, an attorney who's working with an expert witness for the first time? What tips would you provide to that attorney? Well, the first thing is to understand the expert. And what I mean by that is make sure you understand what his or her strengths are and what his or her weaknesses are. And they're both equally important because you want to emphasize the strengths and go to their strengths. And to the extent they have weaknesses, you want to minimize those or try to avoid those things. And then you need to prep them for every possible line of attack on what they're being tasked to do and make them defend everything they've got an opinion on. So you don't want them going into a deposition unless they've been thoroughly vetted and tested and you've thrown everything at them because you, what you don't want, especially for a first-time expert or a new expert, is you don't want them to be surprised because not everybody, I mean, I've got done this so long now that there's nobody that can surprise me anymore. I just, they throw things out of left field and it's fine. Or they'll sometimes they'll even ask you things that are unrelated to the case just to throw you off. And you need to make sure that when I first started doing this, they did that to me and it kind of surprised me. I had to think about it a bit and and then respond. And that's the other thing is to make sure that your expert does do that. Don't react immediately to anything. Think about it and consider it. If you need to pause, do that and then give a thoughtful answer. But that takes training and discipline. And that's the thing Laura needs to, to get to these new experts. What about collaboration? on expert engagements? How do you get involved once you're engaged as an expert? It varies by the case and the parameters of the engagement. The first thing is I need to understand precisely what is it that they want, in my opinion, what do they want me to cover and what they want me to stay away from. So first, just understand the parameters. Understand what the law firm's legal theory of the case is, because they usually have more than one way they can go So what are they going to focus on and what do they not want to focus on? Are there things they want to stay away from and things that they want to focus on? So make sure you have a good grasp of what that is. And then understand what resources they have and whether or not, like me, because I initially worked by myself, but on these big cases, sometimes I need help. Sometimes I need to bring in quant people or due diligence people or folks with specialized knowledge, or just sometimes we'll bring in an economic consulting firm to just dig out information. So understand what those resources are, make sure that they understand the technical nuances, because one of the things that I'll bring to the table is even with a really experienced lawyer, they don't know the securities as well as I do. They just can't. They haven't had 30 years plus of training the way I have. So I need to explain to them what are the nuances of the case? What are the details? What are the technical factors that they need to grasp and show them the other side and how the other side's thinking. I mean, that's the one, the huge advantage I have most of the time is that I've been on every side of my markets. I've been on the buy side, on the sell side. I've worked for a rating agency. I can literally see, I could be working on the other side and I know exactly what they're going to do. And I can tell them, this is what the other side's going to do. And this is how they're going to attack you. And the experienced lawyers know most of that, but I can usually tell them something they haven't thought of. So I need to do that. And when we go back and forth like that, everybody's better for it. So that works pretty well. And you mentioned too, having worked in so many different spaces within your industry and also as an expert, your career has been really journeyed, Dan, and you're very well established in your space. Can you talk to me about how you got there and were there building blocks? Did you have a game plan when you were a student? Well, I think for me, and it's different for every person, but for me, I'd say two things. I've been both lucky and I've been opportunistic. And what I mean by that is, for instance, 
when I got out of school, I started working for a defense contractor. I was there for a couple of years and it was good. And I learned a lot of things. But what I found after I was there even a year was the way that place, it's not really a meritocracy. It's more like the longer you're there, you move up and you don't move up until the people above you retire or move to a different job. And I needed something that was more of a meritocracy. So then I moved to the investment side, to the banking side, and that was a better fit for me. And one of the things was, and I say, that's why I say I'm lucky and opportunistic. So my first move, I moved to one of the big banks, the Citibank, and they were looking in their acceptance company, they were looking for people to do, they did auto lending and home equity lending and manufactured housing lending. And they saw that when I was in grad school, I had an internship with General Motors. And they saw that and they said, oh, this guy knows autos. Three months. Yeah, I knew a little tiny bit about it. But compared to all, they were interviewing like MBAs with a couple of years experience. Well, compared to everybody else they interviewed, I was the one at the top of their list because I had, quote, auto experience. So I got the job. And then I'm there and I'm working on different things and doing the typical things that a lower level analyst will do, a lot of spreadsheets and analysis and things. And one day they walk in and say, so these bankers have this new concept and we want you to look at it for us. And I, well, what's the new concept? They're telling us that they're going to take the loans that we have on our books and turn them into bonds. And I'm like, what? I've never heard of that. And they said, well, it's never been done. So they want to create a new market and you're the best guy for this. So look at it, tell us what it is. And if it works, then we'll go down the path. And that's what happened. So I actually got involved in securitization, helping create it. I was lucky and I was opportunistic because I just jumped at it. That's kind of the way it works. And every step of the way, I had new opportunities. So after I was at the, I moved from being an issuer at the bank and then the investment bank realized that they had this guy working in a subsidiary who's actually done deals, first deals in the market. And they had a whole banking group with very senior people and none of them has as much experience as I did. So they hired me to move to the investment bank and like, okay, teach our senior people how to do this stuff because you've already done it. So I moved over there and did that for a while. After a bit doing that, it was a little bit annoying to me because I was working for people who didn't know as much as I did, but they were senior to me and getting paid more. And then one of the rating agencies called me and said, we need somebody like you. And they hired me to do ABS and MBS. And ultimately, I chaired the rating committees over there for both. And that was great experience. And then after I was there for like four years, the investment bank started calling. And one of them said, well, we need to create a research group to do structured finance. And you have the perfect background. You've been a banker, you've helped create this, and you've got the quantitative background, all of that. So I got put in charge of research at Merrill Lynch. And from there, it just took off. And then after I did that for like 13 years, and it was great because I was like on the institutional investor list and was a top research analyst for a number of years, things of that nature. So then I got to move to the buy side. When I did that, that was a whole new experience for me because then you're actually, instead of advising people on how to invest their money, I was actually investing the money. That was a different thing. So I got to do that. And as I indicated later on, I was approached about being an expert witness and I've done that. And now it's come full circle because I still do the expert witness work. But last year, I started working with an investor and I chaired their investment committee. So now I'm doing both. I'm, I'm working as an expert witness, but I'm also back on the buy side and chairing an investment committee and buying assets for that. So it's been an interesting journey. Certainly, you've had some folks who've been influential in your career. Have you had any mentors who've really helped to shape your career, your professional journey? Yes, I have. But I think I kind of look at mentors maybe a little different than most people because 
I think there's like two kinds of mentors. One is, I guess, more the traditional kind, what I'll call technical mentors, people who are experts in their field of work and can teach you how to be better at your craft, whatever it may be. In my case, investments and structure finance, all that. And the problem in my case was from the start, I helped create the market. So I've always known more than my bosses way back from the mid 80s on, late 80s on, I guess. So I didn't really have a technical mentor in that case, but I'll come back to that in a minute. The other kind of mentor I've had is what I'll call a leadership mentor. And that's somebody who you look at and you say, well, just by the way they conduct themselves, how they're like a role model. I want to be like that, like that person. And I have a few examples of that. Probably the best one was the guy who hired me when I went to Merrill Lynch. And he was a very bright guy. And he knew all the technical stuff. Maybe I knew the technical stuff maybe a little better just because of what my background was. But the thing about this particular guy was he was always considerate of everybody he dealt with, no matter what their station, wherever they were. They could be at the bottom of the food chain or at the top. He treated them all with respect and dignity. And the thing at an investment bank is, or a broker dealer is, it's a very cutthroat world. And everybody there is the best of the best. They were all top five of their class, wherever they went to school. They're all very bright. Most of them think they're brighter than they are, but they're all borderline brilliant, (laughs) if not brilliant. And they're very competitive. And this is a guy that he would always do the right thing. You look at at his whatever decision he made, and it wasn't always like, what's the thing that's going to make us the most money? But basically, what's the right thing to do? And sometimes the right thing to do isn't the thing that makes you the most money, but it's the right thing to do. And this guy always did that. So that was somebody I looked up to and said, I want to be more like this guy. So that influenced me, and I still think that way. But going back to the what I'll call the technical mentors, the thing in my case, and like I said, I haven't had any bosses who actually were better than I was technically because I actually helped create these markets. So what I did do was over the years, and and particularly, I hired a lot of people. And what I would do is I would try to hire people that would help me and make me better. And I want to think there were at least three times. The first time when I first took the job at Merrill, I went back to the place I used to work at where I chaired the rating committees, that was Moody's. And I brought a guy in from over there. And the thing was, I'd say we were roughly equal in our technical background, but there were things he knew better than I did and things I knew better than him. But you put us together and there wasn't anything we couldn't cover. And the the group was small back then. It was me and him and a couple of junior people. And that was it. Over the years, that group grew globally. It was like 30 or 40 people at its peak. So that was one person that just the collaboration worked really well. Then there was another person a little afterwards that I hired, a woman who was an investor at a large insurance company. And what I got from her was, I was advising investors, but I hadn't actually been an investor. And all of a sudden, I'm working with somebody who was an investor who could help me think about, okay, how is this investor looking at it? Whether it's a hedge fund, an insurance company, what are they thinking about when they're making this investment? And I learned so much from her about how investors think. So when I became an investor, I knew a lot of that already. I had a leg up on that, but it was really good to have that. And then later on, there was another guy I hired who I'd been focused more on CDOs and ABS and things of that nature, but I'd moved away from the mortgage market. So I hired a guy who was like basically the best guy I could find on that. And since I'd been out of the market for a while, he taught me some things that how the market had evolved a little bit there and helped me up. So it's not always somebody who's senior to you. I can think of at least those three examples of people that technically were 
junior to me, but in terms of their knowledge, they really weren't. And they were people I collaborated with. I learned so much from those folks. That's the thing is, you know, the way I look at it is you want people that are going to help you out and you can help them out. And as you collaborate, everybody benefits and everyone's better. And that's kind of my goal there. So they were mentors in terms of they filled in the gaps I didn't have and made me better. Dan, what about for, I could kind of see you in this spot at some point in your very earlier, much earlier career or life, but for an intellectually curious, super bright middle school student, high school student, or even college student who might not have a role model in their immediate circle or immediate family, they're working. How would you, what advice would you give that person on how to navigate into that profession of their dreams? Yeah, well, I think there's a few things you can do. So I think the first thing is a student who's curious, the first thing they should do is before anything else, learn as much as they can on their own. And there's so many resources online, depending on what industry they want to get in. There's a lot of information online where you can just, that's the place to start. And you learn about that and you'll find out like if there's companies in the industry, depending on what the industry is, a lot of them have entry-level positions or even part-time jobs, depending on what it is. And if you can snag one of those and you've got your foot in the door, and then once you're there, you can look up the chain and say, okay, meet the people that are there. And you can sort of create a mentor like that. The other thing is when they move up, like I think you said high school students, but when they get to the college level, well, the first thing to look is look at the professors that may have worked in that particular industry because they will have contacts and they can help you with that. And they can also help you get internships at the next level up at the college level in those things. I've got two kids in college right now. They both seem to have secured internships for next summer already. Actually, one of them, I think, got like three offers. Wow. I finally decided which one to take. And my daughter's got a couple of choices on there. They do different things and they're at different schools, but that's what they're doing. And I told them one of them is doing things that are completely different than what I've ever done. So I can't be real helpful there other than to say, find the people that are. Although I know some people that are in the field that she wants to go into. So that helped and made those introductions and she took them there. And in my son's case, he's doing things, some of it's related to what I do and some of it's different, but I could help him point him in the right direction there too. But that's the thing. But the big thing is they have to do the work themselves. I can give them a little push and give them some connections, but ultimately they need to do the work. And it's the same with any student. It's like, if they're curious, first learn as much as you can, then find a way to get into somebody in that industry, whatever that industry is. I mean, I know about my industry well, but there's a whole world of things out there to do. And it's really getting your foot in the door and being persistent. If one door closes, find another door and ultimately you'll find a way there and you'll succeed if you're persistent and you just keep at it. Dan, could you leave us with some practical tips for our listeners? What key areas should we be monitoring related to potential litigation and risk in the year ahead? I think there's a few things. I mean, the most obvious one is things that are pandemic related because there's going to be a lot of litigation for a while related to the pandemic. We're going to see people using different legal theories. The one that comes to mind immediately to me, because I was involved in something in this regard, is is a legal theory called frustration of purpose. And that fits the pandemic purposely. But basically what that means is if you have a contract and the purpose of that contract was frustrated because of an unforeseen event, well, pandemic was an unforeseen event, and there have been some recent cases that I've seen recently where they've used frustration of purpose saying, well, the pandemic came and I had this contract and that just eliminated all value of the contract. So I should be dismissed from my obligations because of that. 
So I think you're going to see a lot more people figure out that that's a good legal theory. I mean, a lot of the law firms have figured it out. And so there's going to be a lot of litigation in that way. There's also going to be a lot of litigation related to what I'll call ongoing lockdowns in some jurisdictions, because what you have is this tension between government mandates on the one side and individual freedom and unalienable rights on the other. And some people are angry about it and they're going to be litigating it. And that's not going to stop until the lockdown stops, until the government steps back a bit. And we're not there yet. So you're going to continue to see that. I think that's mostly going to be in the next 12 to 18 months. After that, it should sort of dissipate as things get out there. And then the other thing is, because of the pandemic, you've got a lot of financial hardship that persists in a lot of pockets, uh, both personal and business financial problems will create litigation. And this is, again, a parallel to the financial crisis. That's what happened then. And the pandemic was more severe in terms of the financial hardship it created than the financial crisis was. So you're going to see litigation. It's inevitable. And again, like what we talked about before, subprime auto lending is certainly one place that was already on the radar, but this exacerbated the issues there. So you're going to see a lot of litigation opportunities there. And then the last one is another one that it seems obvious, but I don't know everybody thinks about it, but just the U.S. is very divided politically right now, like almost straight down the middle. And political parties will battle with each other on any number of issues, but a lot of those are going to end up in court and people take sides one way or the other. And there's just going to be a lot of litigation either directly or indirectly as a result of that. So there's just a lot of stuff. But I do think just like the financial crisis, there was an explosion of litigation afterwards. And this last crisis or the current crisis, it's, you know, we're getting towards the end of it, you know, with the vaccinations and everything. I've had all of my shots already, so that's a good thing. But it's going to go on for a while because a lot of people lost a lot of money and there's a lot of these programs are going to keep going on. And that's just ripe for litigation. So there's just a lot of it. As with the financial crisis, maybe the biggest winners at the end are the law firms. So uh, yeah, no, I think there's just no shortage of opportunities here. There's going to be a lot of things and people just have to keep their eyes open. And that's why I get a lot of news feeds and I connect with a lot of people in law firms and other people you know, in the markets. I hear about a lot of things before they actually get litigated, but, I, but the radar is there. So you can see it coming sometimes. And it's just like what I've done with my career is I position myself where the things that are suitable for me, a lot of this stuff isn't suitable for me, but the stuff that is, if it has to do with finance or investments, then I make sure that I'm in the right place to deal with that. Dan, thank you. This has been a really enjoyable conversation and I feel like our listeners are really going to enjoy it as well. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your thoughts, share your insights and give us a little bit of guidance about what's coming ahead this year. Uh, It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of IMS Insights Podcast and special thanks to Dan Castro for being today's guest. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver consultative trial and expert services for the most influential global firms. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and over 1,000 trials and to connect you with the sharpest subject matter experts and meaningful insights on important matters. If you have a topic you'd like to hear more about or unique work in your own practice you'd like to share, email our editorial team at editor at expertservices.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Join us next time on IMS Insights. Thanks again.